is John Carr. I'm a licensed vocational nurse here in California, and I'm a medic first responder. I've worked in the ER, med surge, telemetry, subacute, and early in my career, of course, I did SNF, um, assisted living, hospice, home health, everything in the LVN field, pretty much. But now I'm doing medic first responder, and I noticed that there's a lot of skills we don't see very often um, in the field. So I'm creating a podcast to help us brush up on things that we need brushed up on. It could be scenarios that we don't see very often, but I want myself and others to be fresh, uh, have these have these scenarios fresh in our minds so that we know exactly what actions we need to take. So I'm using um, Carol, Nancy Caroline's book, Emergency Care in the Streets. It's used at UCLA Paramedic Program. So I assume it's one of the best uh, sources of information we can have. So I made this for, for myself, for any nurse, EMT, um, doctor, any, anyone that needs um, first responder skills. I'm gonna skip the first couple chapters because it just goes over like history and, and a lot of vocabulary that I'm gonna assume you already know. But I'm gonna go over the, like the nitty, nitty gritty action steps that we need for different scenarios. So I'm gonna go over patient assessment, airway management, um, all the medical emergencies, uh, the trauma emergencies, shock and resuscitation, and some parts of dealing with patients in the special population. First, I wanna talk about patient assessment and there's basically five different sections of, of that uh, first is scene size up primary then primary survey history taking secondary assessment and then reassessment so first thing we know that is most important is the safety of ourselves and others we want to make sure that we don't cause us to get injured or anyone else we want to make sure it's safe. Um, you want to determine how many patients we have, consider any additional resources, and of course take st- standard precautions and determine the mechanism of injury or illness. And after experience, you, you guys know that you can kind of just glance and figure all that out within one second. Um, you don't need to go through like step by step. Primary assessment is when we're going to form a general uh, impression. We're going to see if a person is conscious, um, the level of consciousness, assess and treat any any of the ABCs right away, airway, breathing, circulation. Also assess any disability or exposure to any other elements of danger. Um, identify the chief complaint and priority of patient care, what we, what we need to treat first, and if we need to transport them. You know, there's certain scenarios where we're always going to call ALS. Um, I'm assuming, uh, based on what I'm doing, ALS hasn't been called yet. So there's, if, if anything has to do with like a head trauma, um, depending on what your protocol is, you just, you need to um, have that automatically in your head so that you know when to call ALS. Um, you know, if you see anything obviously broken, 
obviously a, a change in consciousness, any, any issue with the ABCs, chest pain, um, etc. Those are pretty much an ALS scenario. I'll probably go over more as the book mentions them. And once you once you do treat all the ABCs, you're gonna take the history of the patient. History with the OPQRST. Do you remember what that is? What is the OPQRST? I'm gonna let you think about that. And then what is then you're gonna take the past medical history with the sample. Sample. What is sample? Do you remember what that is? And I'm going to give you 10 second breaks to, to think of that, that, about that. I don't want you just passively listening because you're not going to absorb anything. You have to actively participate to encourage learning and, and retain things. So you're going to do the OPQRST sample, and now you're going to go to the secondary assessment. You're going to take, um, you're, you're going to check, check all the vitals. Um, you're going to know if the patient's medical or trauma at that point. Uh, you can do a full head to toe physical exam, full body, uh, if needed. You know, sometimes it's, it's not needed, but then you're, then you're going to focus on the injury. And then you're going to focus on uh, different body systems. So based on the body system, respiratory, cardiovascular, neurologic, or reproductive, you're just going to focus more on that, uh, what's the concern at the moment. And that's pretty much it. All you have to do is repeat that. So you're going to reassess. You're going to repeat the primary survey. You're going to obtain vital signs again. You're going to reassess what the chief complaint is. And you're going to recheck interventions, identify and treat changes in the patient's condition. Um, and then you're going to reassess the patient again. Um, unstable patients, you're going to reassess them. How often do you reassess the patient, unstable patient? How many minutes do you remember? And then how many minutes do you reassess the stable patient? You know, it doesn't have to be right on, but unstable patients every five minutes, stable patients every 15 minutes. Five and 15. The most important thing to, to realize when you're doing your assessment is you want to quickly determine whether the patient's sick or not sick. Um, the earliest intervention you have uh, based on the chief complaint is going to prolong their life or shorten it. Uh, that's the most critical part of our position here. And you can develop your own assessment style. You just want to make sure you follow the, the, that parameter um, of you know, the OPQRST, the sample, um, and all the steps that we talked about. You're going to want to know if it's medical trauma, of course. And so if it is trauma, the patient's medical history is often less relevant to the care plan, um, but it's definitely needed. But uh, with medical, you know, it's usually 
uh, any conditions usually stemming from their history uh, most of the time. And sometimes there's a combination of two where you uh, trauma is caused by a medical condition. Um, so keep that in mind as well. So it's best not to assume anything. We, we want to get the full picture um, to see what the cause of the condition is. When we do the scene size up, basically I just look around, make sure I'm very alert, and I and I just ask, what happened? <laughs> Usually you'll find out quickly. You might hear different scenarios from different people, so you definitely want to talk to the patient if they're able to talk. And obviously if you see multiple um, patients at once, you're going to call for additional uh, ALS. You're going to call for additional backup. First and foremost, just remember guys, your safety is number one. You can't help anybody if you're hurt. Don't run across busy streets with cars flying by. You, you really just have to wait. I know you got in this profession to help others and that's, that's very admirable, but keep yourself safe for, for yourself and for your family and loved ones. There's an obvious one, but put your gloves on if you're gonna touch a patient. Please. So now we're going to move on to the primary survey examination techniques. Um, there's going to be inspection, palpation, and auscultation. So you're basically going to look, feel, and listen. So you're going to inspect for anything that looks abnormal, uh, asymmetry, swelling, deformities, discoloration um, for soft tissue in, uh, injuries. And then you're gonna palpate. Um, you definitely ask permission if, uh, if they're alert uh, before you just go hands-on and start touching somebody. Palpation is the process of touching a feel for abnormalities, uh, swelling or deformities. Times palpation is gentle, but a firm touch will help you to identify areas in which your patient has pain or tenderness. And use your fingertips since you have more uh, nerve endings you can feel for changes much easier then you're going to listen you're going to listen to the sounds within the body so it could be the bowel sounds if something's affecting the, the stomach lungs uh, breathing and blood pressure sounds using a stethoscope and that first primary survey should take a minute minute and a half um, you're going to it's the most intense portion of the assessment because you're focusing on identifying and managing life-threatening problems. So the book lists the assessment kind of like in different orders, but you're gonna um, definitely check for mentation. So you're gonna use AVPU for that, um, which is gonna be discussed next. So AVPU is alert, responds appropriately, further defined mental status as follows. So. A&O times four, they're alert to person, place, time, and event. A&O times three, person, place, and time. A&O times two, person, place. A&O times one, person only. They only know their name. Then V is a response to verbal stimuli. P is response to pain. U is if they're unresponsive. AVPU, what is AVPU? Should be easy since I just said it. 
You're going to assess the airway, assess the patient's airway status by focusing on two questions. Is it open and patent? If it's open, it is likely to remain so. Immediate life threats may be caused by the tongue, foreign body airway obstruction. So if the tongue's swelling, it could be an issue. Um, or if there's any trauma, it could be an issue, even though it's open and patent at the moment. And that's why you must reassess and obviously pay attention. And listen to the way they're breathing. If you hear snoring or hearing any uh, uh, sounds of strider or just any, any difficulty breathing, you know it's not quite patent. If you hear any gurgling or bubbling sounds, think suction. You might need a suction. There's probably something in there, like fluids, that are that's causing them to gurgle or bubble up. Or vomit. And just a side note, you know, in the hospital right away, anytime somebody has difficulty breathing, you know, it's based on the trauma, but you, can, you can't do this, but it's much easier to breathe when you're sitting up. I mean, especially if you have like a CHP patient, you have a patient that has all this fluid in their lungs and you go to lay them back, it's gonna drown them. It's gonna flood their lungs full of fluid and they, they're just, you're just gonna see them start turning uh, blue. Um, so depending on the condition, I think it probably comes with experience, but um, I find it much easier to, to breathe sitting up if they're able to, if there's no spine injury. But if, even if there's a spine injury and they can't breathe, um, you, you're going to have to make that call based on your experience. Um, obviously, turn them to the side if they start vomiting so that they're not um, breathing down that fluid. But um, that's one thing we always do in the hospital, which I don't see in the first responder uh, material. So based on your license and, and what you're allowed to do, if the airway... If, if the uh, mechanical means is required to keep the airway open, you can choose which airway adjunct you, you'll use, an OPA, oropharyngeal airway, uh, airway, or a MPA, nasopharyngeal airway. And I would practice this. I would def I mean, you don't want to stick it in your nose, but practice it on, on your own mouth so that you're, you remember how to do it quickly. And of course, that comes to size. You use different sizes for, for different people. So remember how to use the appropriate sizing. So when you look at the breathing, first thing you're going to ask yourself is, are they breathing? If yes, then you're going to go on. If, if no, you're going to do uh, begin assisting the breathing. We're um, adding oxygen. But if they are breathing, you're going to ask, is the breathing adequate? So some examples of life-threatening conditions could be a pneumothorax or a tension pneumothorax, flail chest, and inadequate minute volume. And you're gonna, if, if, if they have any of those issues, you're gonna, you're gonna basically cut their shirt off at that point and you're gonna need to look at their chest. If you locate a sucking chest wound, then you need to seal it with a three-sided occlusive dressing and begin oxygenating and ventilate the patient as needed. If a patient shows signs of respiratory failure or shock and has diminished or absent breath sounds on one side of the chest, then consider the possibility of a tension pneumothorax 
This is where ALS or a paramedic or somebody with the appropriate license can do the needle decompression of the chest. And that's why it's important to know if you need to call ALS right away. If I see anybody with difficulty breathing and uh, I could see them struggling, uh, I'll call ALS pretty quickly. Um, unless it's like a psyche psychological uh, scenario um, but still it's something you don't really want to play around with uh, uh, you're gonna you're gonna have to make your own judgment call you know you could check the oxygenation uh, there's the oxygenation oxygenation <laughs> the oxygen saturation and uh, see if they're getting enough oxygen but um, take that very very seriously Next, you're gonna assess circulation. You're gonna look for any major bleeding, major hemorrhage, or other life-threatening injuries. Obviously, if you see anything squirting out, it might be an arterial bleed, and you might need to put a tourniquet around it um, if it doesn't stop quickly. Because um, as we know on TV, we see that done all the time, but it's rather rare. Um, or it's less common in general because our arteries are typically deeper and just where they're located, they're kind of more protected. But obviously, you're going to treat that if you see that. If you evaluate unresponsive patients, scan for blood quickly by lightly running your gloved hands from head to toe, pausing periodically to see if your gloves are bloody. I don't know why it says that because you should be able to see blood unless it's pitch dark or something. Immediately apply pressure and stop the bleeding if you see any bleeding. And the, the, the time frame to apply the tourniquet is less than 30 seconds for arterial bleeding. That basically means we need a tourniquet in our back pocket because um, by the time we show up, it's probably past 30 seconds and the patient's going into shock. Then you're gonna assess the pulse to determine the rate, quality, and rhythm of the heartbeat. And you could uh, hold it for 30 seconds and multiply it by two to obtain the, the baseline. And what is the normal pulse rate for resting adults? Sixty to 100 beats per minute. People who are physically fit may have a lower resting heart rate. And terminology, if it's lower than 60, the patient is, has bradycardia. Higher than 100, it's considered tachycardia. And you're gonna check for peripheral pulses. You're gonna check the strength and quality of them. And a quick way to look for um, sorry, the circulation is just by looking at the color of the person. You know, it's easier to tell. Caucasian people, but look at the lips, see if they're turning bluish, um, see if there's any um, grayish color to their skin or it's just losing pigment. I've seen this a lot because I did hospice and you can clearly see when the heart's shutting down, the person does start losing the pinkness, the redness, and they turn more grayish and bluish. In kids, you can do the cap refill time where you pinch the fingernail bed to see how long it takes to uh, restore full color. 
and it should be around two seconds or less with children and their finger that is so if a patient has inadequate circulation you want to take immediate actions to restore or improve it control severe bleeding improve oxygen delivery to the tissues remember to follow you know, standard precautions and right away of course if you cannot detect a pulse in a patient, you need to begin chest compressions as soon as you can, uh, or immediately, and as soon as you can, you're going to apply the AED defibrillator. I'm not going to go over the Glasgow comma scale. That takes a little practice to get. And one of the most important things, again, is making a transport decision. If you see any other changes that happen while you're with them, where they didn't need transport at first, but now they need it, just make the call. Um, we always like to send them out and be safe. And speaking on that, you know, I have patients I, I worked with that, I had this old lady at the nursing home. Um, actually, let me tell you the story first. I had an old man at the nursing home. He fell and for sure we thought he broke his hip. He's, he's crying and all this, this pain, he's walking funny, he doesn't want to bear weight. So um, we have a protocol there to send him out on any fall, fall which I feel awful for because you, uh, you know the fire gets too many calls. But we sent him out, he got his x-rays, there was no fracture, totally fine, recovered fine. Next, I had an older lady fall. Um, she didn't even complain much, we saw some some bruising on her on her hip um, she had almost no pain she was still ambulating um, she said she was fine we told her we had to send her out because that's our protocol sent her out she had a broken hip and she died within a week so that that uh the policy of the nursing home you know shows that you never know what can happen I like to tell people I'm not Clark Kent, I'm not Superman, I don't have x-ray eyes, so you, you, you'll need to go to the ER to get an x-ray to see if there's something broken, because we can't always see the fracture um, from the outside. And I've, I've, had, uh, I've had doctors on, on the field with me while, uh, while uh, people were playing football, and a guy fell and kind of on his shoulder and the doctor assessed him. He's like, oh, nothing's broken, you're fine. And I'm looking at the pain and everything. I'm just like, that doesn't look right, you know? Um, there was a little swelling. I said, you should probably just go, go get checked. And sure enough, he had a broken clavicle. So, you know, some medical people we, um, make bad calls sometimes. So get diagnosed, get a, get a full x-ray and then you can sleep at night in peace. So here's where the book says, make a transport decision. This is usually done for these scenarios. Patients with receiving CPR or respiratory arrest, um, poor general impression. The patient is in obvious distress and does not look well. Um, sometimes just the way they're, they're, they're acting, you can just tell something's not right. Uh, unresponsive. Um, that you want to call. Responsive, but cannot follow commands. Altermentation is definitely a bad sign. Could be sign of a head injury or a stroke or um, 
let's see, difficulty breathing, any difficulty breathing, hypoxia that fails to correct rapidly within one to two minutes, um, hypoperfusion or shock, without question, it's an obvious sign of a high-risk patient, a weak or absent pulse, of course, complicated childbirth, chest pain with a systolic blood pressure, um, it says less than 100, um, so that's, you know, it's kind of confusing me because usually when you have an MI, you have high blood pressure. So I don't, um, it says in, the, in that context of tachycardia, um, the sign may indicate shock. So, okay, so it's talking about shock. So I just go with chest pain in general. Um, suspected stroke, um, uncontrolled bleeding. Severe pain anywhere. Anywhere severe pain. And one thing, you know, I see vitals, I see check the ABCs, but I would also check temperature. I mean, if there's any suspected heat illness or infection, I mean, the patient could be septic. Um, so checking the temperature is important. I would do that too. So here are the skills for performing a rapid full body scan. Inspect and palpate the head for open closed findings and crepitus. You know, any crunching sounds or any, any sounds while you're pushing. Step two, inspect and palpate the neck for open closed findings like JVD, jugular venous distension. The visible bulging of the jugular veins when a patient is semi-fowler or full fowler. Um, tracheal deviation and crepitus. Then you're just going to move down the body, inspect the chest, doing the same thing. The abdomen. Uh, you're going to look for any rigidity, firm or, or soft, and distension. You're going to go to the pelvis and push on the pelvis slightly um, to see if there's any instability or tenderness. You're going to move down the body, inspect all four extremities. For open closed findings, assess the bilateral pulses and motor and sensory functions. Then you, if possible, you have somebody else you can roll the patient, keeping C-spine if needed, um, to check the back or buttocks for any other injuries. When you check the pulses, you're gonna check, um, you're gonna check the neck, the carotid, you're gonna check the, the thigh for the femoral. You're gonna check the brachial. That's the bicep, you know, between the bicep and tricep. The radial, it's basically right by the wrist. And the posterior tibial, the inside of the foot. And the dorsalis pedis pulse, basically the outside the foot. So what points of the body do you check the pulse? So moving up from head to toe, it's going to be neck, it's going to be the arm, brachial, and the wrist, then the femoral, basically the outside and inside of the foot. And a side note for pulse socks, um, 
make sure you have a good connection on there. A lot of times, somebody will call and say, oh, their pulse ox is dropping, but then you look at it and it's not completely on their finger anymore. And sometimes you have to change fingers or change the battery. Here's the skill drill for performing the full body exam. You're gonna look at the face for any laceration, bruises, fluids, or deformities. Inspect the areas around the eyes and eyelids. Examine the eyes for redness. And for contact lenses, use a pen light to assess pupils, perla. Step four, look behind the ears for bruising, AKA battle sign. Step five, use a pen light to look for drainage of spinal fluid or blood in the ears. Step six, examine the head for bruising lacerations. Um, palpate for tenderness, cold depressions, deformities. Step seven, palpate the zygomas, uh, basically the cheekbones, for tenderness, symmetry, and stability. Palpate the max, maxilla. Check the nose for blood and drainage. Palpate the mandible. Access the mouth and nose for cyanosis. Foreign bodies including loose or broken teeth or dentures, bleeding, lacerations, deformities. And you're gonna check for unusual odors. Inspect the neck for obvious lacerations, bruising, deformities, JVD, tracheal deviation. Palpate the front and back of the neck. Um, you're you're going to go down the chest, look, make sure it, it rises equally regularly. And we pretty much went over the other steps. It just went over um, a couple things I didn't mention earlier. I'm, I'm kind of skipping um, things I've done a lot, so if you need to go over how to use a glucom uh, glucometer and things like that, just, just look up what you're, what you're thinking that you need to review. And obviously apply C-spine if there's any uh, spinal trauma that's suspected. I don't know why it lists all these things in different orders like this. If you're newer or you have it, you're seeing lots of, you're facing lots of anxiety in this scenario. That just means you haven't um, repeated the skills enough. So my advice is to just go through and, and drill this, um, drill these steps over and over and over and over until it's just automatic. Because it, that'll make you much more comfortable in the scenarios. You know, there's a saying that if you're prepared, you won't fear. Fear. So you're only kind of fearing it because you're not prepared. You kind of you don't know the knowledge completely. Um, and under stress, guess what? You're not going to recall things as quickly either. So just repeat them daily if you need to, over and over and over again, until it's just automatic. And remember, um, if your license doesn't. Uh, qualify you to diagnose and just no just don't try to diagnose come on guys just go to school and get a license where you can actually diagnose um, don't pretend you know more than you do um, this is this is I'm basing this on first response on basically first aid um, so you know you'll you probably have seen if you've seen a lot of scenarios you could kind of tell what things are for the most part but just remember you're just here to treat and to look at what's happening with the patient and treat it as it comes. Be aware when you're examining the spine that some people have kyphosis or, or different type of spines that are 
that are not normal. So if they are alert, just ask them if that's normal for them. And for their skill drill, for example, the nervous system, you say check for AVPU, evaluate patient's coordination. You could do a finger to nose test. Um, you can have them walk back and forth if possible. Perform the pronator test, basically put your arms um, out to the side, uh, well, kind of forward to the side a little bit, and have them close their eyes and have them with their arms straight uh, put their hands up to the sky and then down low and see if they can do that. There shouldn't be any difference on both sides. And then evaluate the patient's sensory by checking their response if you pinch the fingers and toes. And, you know, for stroke, we'll have them, it doesn't mention this, but we'll have them check their grips, have them squeeze your hands, see if they're equal grips, and have them push um, their foot like they're pushing a gas pedal against your hand to see if they can have the coordination. I'm going to stop the assessment at that part. Um, pretty much went over the main points. There's a lot of little details you can go and, and review if you want to. You know, use your family, use your friends, use your girlfriend. Have them act out a scenario and practice. Uh, it's kind of fun. And then uh, you'll get more practice while you're, um, if you're not getting many calls or if you need to brush up on your assessment. It's very simple once you break it down to like, number one, do they need to go to the hospital? And then number two, if they do, then they're gonna make the call and then it's treat and stabilize as much as possible until they're transported. Like that's as simple as it needs to be. Um, but of course, go through all the steps. A lot of times you make the call and um, you've, they, they might show up really fast where you might be able to get all the vitals or might not. So don't feel bad, just, just treat what you need to treat right away um, and take care of the patient. So there goes the first podcast. I hope it helped. Um, give me feedback. I want to improve it, improve it for myself. I want, I want this to be useful for people. Um, it's going to be my first one, so it's definitely going to be a little rough. And But anything I could do to help anyone in this field to, to brush up and to improve, I, I'm all ears. You know, we all have different, different experience based on um, our lives and what roles we made in the medical medical uh, community. You know, I value every position in the medical field. You know, I don't see uh, nurses uh, higher than EMTs. I don't see them higher than CNAs. I don't see doctors higher than nurses. You know, I've seen any, I've seen any career path, you know, people more, uh, I would say, more experienced than another. You know, I, I would trust a, a seasoned ENT over a doctor um, right after a newer doctor right away. You know, I would, I would trust a, um, uh, maybe a seasoned nurse over a paramedic that's new or vice versa, a seasoned paramedic over a, a newer nurse or a nurse that hasn't had experiences like they have had. So it doesn't matter the role. It's based on experiences and the skills that you've acquired. So, you know, I hear lots of talk about, you know, everyone kind of talking trash on each other. And it just comes down to ego. Like, everyone's trying to feel cooler or better. Somebody got butt hurt. But, you know, we're all just here to help people. So, uh, 
let's keep the ego out of it. Just just realize what you need to learn. Focus on that. Focus on learning and growing yourself. And become the best that you can at the role that you are at right now. Um, that's the most benefit that you can make for for the humanity in general. So I uh, hope this is helpful. And I'll look forward to doing the next one.